Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. All right, welcome investors. We have another very great episode for you today. We have an amazing father-daughter dynamic duo team Tracy and Keely Hubbard of Hubbard Capital. And some quick background, Tracy is a real estate investor and syndicator, professional Forex trader and serial entrepreneur, having owned and operated six companies across various industries. He's had 20 years of experience in the financial sector as a professional commodities and Forex trader and investment fund manager, previously holding series three and 43 licenses. And because of Tracy's extensive experience in global interest rate and currency markets, he brings a unique advantage in his understanding of how global interest rates can affect cap rates and financing rates, giving him an edge to position his investors for the coming years. And his daughter, Keely Hubbard, comes from a diverse background and has gained a unique perspective on both the financial and real estate markets. So at age 14, Keely began watching her father trade the commodities in foreign currency markets using nothing but paper charts and a call-in broker before the days of electronic trading. Kelly's passion for the financial markets continued throughout her college years when she worked for a large bond trader in Dallas. Following her graduation, she spent seven years in the financial education industry as an executive for an international company where she drove unprecedented growth and also became the youngest VP in the company's history. So throughout Keely's career, her primary focus has always been to help people achieve their financial life goals. So she has a passion for people and skilled communication, which provides investors peace of mind as she apprises them on the scope of the project from acquisition to operations and ultimately onto the next multifamily opportunity. So let's welcome Tracy and Keely Hubbard to the show, Dealmaker Diaries. Let's go. Hey, Keely, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Very good. Very good. Both of you guys there? Yes, Tracy's here too. Can you hear us okay? Because I'm using my computer microphone. Oh, yeah, I can hear you fine. How's it going today, Tracy? Going good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for joining us today, you guys. Sure. How's your, your day going? Pretty good? Everything's going well? I lost doing. Lots to do, but hey, it's better than sitting around being bored. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Are you still in Austin? Yeah, I'm still in Austin. I'm leaving on uh, Wednesday. The, yeah, Wednesday. So I actually went and got a COVID test um, this morning because they require us to take a PCR test before they let us back into Japan. Oh, right. Okay. And I'm, yeah. it came back clear then, I'm sure. Well, we won't get to the results until they said five to seven days. It may come sooner, but they'll email them to us. But yeah, I'm sure it'll come back fine. Very cool. Very cool. All right, good, good. So, all right, guys. So before we dig into what Hubbard Capital is all about, why don't you guys tell me about each of your backgrounds and how you came about to form Hubbard Capital? Okay, she's gonna let me go first. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to have to follow her, so that's what it's about. 
Uh, let me see. I don't know how far back you want me to go, but um, I've been an entrepreneur pretty much all my adult life. Uh, owned six different companies. Went through a bankruptcy in 1998. Uh, started uh, after that, started trading the financial markets to uh, learn about stocks and futures and currencies and everything. I did that for about 20 years, uh, and I was successful at that and then the market started changing mainly because of the fed getting involved in it so about three or four years ago i started thinking i need to start diversifying myself out of the stock markets and into hard assets which is like real estate mm -hmm. the reason i hadn't gone into real estate uh, on a bigger scale is i always wanted to be real liquid and obviously real estate's not as liquid as the stock market, but it doesn't matter if you're real liquid. If you can't make anything off your money, you might as well. <laughs> That's sort of what I started doing in 2015, shut down any kind of hedge funds I had and just started looking at, uh, you know, real estate, income real estate. That's, uh, that's sort of where it started and uh, moved over pretty quickly into multifamily because I knew that's uh, where the better money's made and it's easier to scale. And that's what we started doing. And then as I've been investigating it over, over time, uh, I started realizing pretty quick, you know, you can't do this by yourself. And it usually takes a pretty good sized team to get it done. So I started looking at putting together my team, uh, attorneys, accountants, you know, uh, how you do the GPs, a mentor. And then I also realized that I needed some help in the other areas. And that's when I asked Keely if she would come aboard with me and uh, help me out in this side of the business. Because we've worked together before in a family business. so. That's sort of how I got it started. And uh, we just uh, formed Hubbard Capital Group just to uh, use for our real estate multifamily uh, venture. And that's uh, pretty much how we got started at it. And it's a short story. I'm 63, so I could go on for a long time. <laughs> and Tracy, so you mentioned um, a bankruptcy. Was that through one of the businesses you had started that precipitated that? Yeah, it was actually a business, uh, and I bought and sold several companies, and the uh, one that bankrupted me was, yeah, I bought that company in 1995, and uh, some things happened. Well, I got too one-sided with my customers, as far as one customer was a very large part of my business, and I'm not going to bore you with the blood and guts and gory details of it, but let's just say that uh, it put me out of business, so that's, that's pretty much how it happened. Okay. Yeah, and I guess those experiences are always learning experiences as well, right? It's always room to learn from those. Yeah, it really is. Um, it doesn't have the stigma it used to have. Uh, I was, you know, I was very proud about that, not wanting to do it, and uh, made some really not great decisions um, at the very last end of the deal in trying to save the company because I'd never had a failure before on that. So I wasn't going to let this be the first one, so I, I dumped a lot of cash into it, uh, probably mm -hmm months before it went away and that was a really not a great decision I should have walked away when I knew it wasn't gonna work but I didn't so that's uh, that's what put the B in broke for me <laughs> <laughs> you live and learn you know and I think situations like that I, I was obviously a kid when that happened but it really helps you you know figure out like I look at my dad if he hadn't gone through that he wouldn't realize what he's truly capable of because you know, sometimes people are afraid to step out because when you don't do the hard things, you don't have the confidence to take risk. And you know, he's been to hell and back basically. So when you, you know, when you step out and you do the hard things, you go through those tough times and you rebuild, you really figure out what you're made of on the inside and also, you know, what's important to you and what you value. And 
it's a good reset to help you redirect and really figure out how you want to live your life going forward with any crisis in life, especially, you know, this crazy year of 2020 when everybody's going through, I always try to look at it that way. What is life trying to teach me in this moment? Yeah, definitely. It definitely tests and shows what your true character is, I think. So yes, absolutely agree. Okay, Killian, how about you? Where, how did you, um, Tell us a little bit about your background. I know you're, you're coming from a corporate background. So tell us a little bit about that and how it fits in with what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I escaped corporate America about two and a half years ago. <laughs> um, I actually quit at the peak of my career. You know, my goal was always to become vice president of sales before I was 30. I did it and I was miserable. And, um, you know, I love the people that I worked with, but I just, I was getting further, further and away from what my passion was, which was really working with salespeople and business owners um, and really seeing a direct impact in, uh, in what I was doing. So I quit and, you know, I went out just consulting on my own, building my own business. And that's really, you know, where my dad were able to partner up together. Cause like he's mentioned before, this is not our first um, rodeo together. So we really know what our strengths are for each of us. And we're able to operate within our strengths. You know, he's incredible at processes, numbers, underwriting, you know, finding those diamond in the rough deals with our brokers. And I'm really great with people. I just, I love working with investors. I love talking to investors. I love building the team when we're a deal under contract and you know managing the raise from start to finish. So we really have found a great way to operate within our strengths and support each other in the process. Yeah, definitely. So I mean, I spent a little time with you guys and it seems that you guys have a very unique chemistry that allows you to work very well together. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I love my mother to death, but I definitely don't think I could work with her, so. <laughs> So I wonder, why do you think you guys can work together so well, aside from the, the points T Keeley just touched on? Well, mainly because it's not our first rodeo. I mean, believe me, the first uh, venture we had together, and it was basically, I had all my kids working for me in one of my companies. And it was an interesting dynamics because you raise your kids and all of a sudden you turn around, they're adults and they think they can give you advice. And you're saying, <laughs> wait a minute, I'm the boss. And uh, we had some really, really uh, honest meetings with each other about what our weeks and uh, strengths and weaknesses were. So it didn't start off that smooth. I mean, obviously, everybody's gonna have a little bump in the road, but what it was was a good prep for what we're doing now. And like Keely said, uh, learn what our, our strengths are and, and go and work on those strengths and don't try to be, you know, not try to cross over. And I realized real quickly, you know, what her skill sets are. And I don't even try to attempt to give her advice because she's, way on down the road past me on a lot of that stuff. So that, that was one of the, the uh, I think, the things that helped us was going through that first before we did this one. Yeah, we got a dress rehearsal run with the other business for sure. And I think, you know, respecting each other's strengths, like he mentioned, you know, we've certainly had our come to Jesus meetings, as we call them, with each other. You know, but I think we're both really great at quickly realizing if we have a tone with each other, because I, I teach this, it's funny, I teach this in sales. Um, but it applies in every aspect of life and communication. It's usually not what you say, it's how you said it <laughs> that can really <laughs> upset somebody. So if we find ourselves, you know, having a tone or being short, we just quickly catch ourselves and just say, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it like that. I was, you know, stressed about something else. And I think it's keeping those, you know, lines of communication open and realizing too at the core of it, like being grateful 
to work with family. I mean, the older that I get, I realize how grateful I am to have the opportunity to be in business with my father. So I think it starts from, you know, how you look at the opportunity. Yeah, Keila, I think you and your siblings are very fortunate to be raised under an entrepreneur. I know I didn't, I didn't have that growing up. So when I decided what I wanted to do, I got a lot of pushback from, from my relatives, especially my parents. So I think that's yeah. very, very fortunate you guys had that, that, that opportunity growing up. Absolutely. We, you know, I've watched my dad um, in business since I was a kid. I, I just don't, I never remember him working for anybody. <laughs> and, um, I think that's also what's given me the guts to, you know, escape corporate America and say I quit um, when everybody would think that I was crazy because I had it all, you know, everybody's like, oh my gosh, the path is laid out perfectly for you. You could be an officer in the company one day. And I look at that life and I look at the life my dad has lived and I'm like, no, I want freedom. There, there's nothing that, um, that you could put in place of just complete freedom of time and being your own boss. And I wouldn't have had the courage to do that if I hadn't seen him do it his whole life. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure, Keila, you had, I mean, just countless lessons you learned from him. But what, thinking back, um, what do you think the most, was the most valuable lesson you learned from your father growing up, business-wise? Yeah, like... And this is going to sound cliche and I don't want it to because I want to explain it, but it, I feel like it's perseverance. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are afraid to take risk because of how they look at failure. You know, they see failure as a bad thing, whether if it's a business venture that doesn't work out or a partnership or relationship that doesn't work out. And so it's kind of like that one trial learning. They have a, a failure in life or what they perceive to be a failure. And it teaches them that I don't want to feel that way anymore. So I'm not going to step out again. And what I've watched my dad do is anytime that other people might say, oh, wow, that was a failure to him. It was just like, well, that didn't work. I'm going to try something different. And he's just always reinvented himself. I mean, you know, he was managing money uh, with his own, you know, hedge fund. And it's like, this isn't working anymore. The markets have shifted. And instead of staying stuck in that place, he's like, we're reinventing ourselves. We're moving into multifamily. When, you know, he went through the bankruptcy, he reinvented himself and found the financial market. So it's, it's given me the courage to say, you know what, I can try anything. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It just means, you know, it was the business didn't work out. Let's try something else. Because if you're not out there taking risk and you're not out there stepping out and pushing yourself and trying things, you're never going to grow. There's no way that you'll be able to create, you know, the life that you ultimately dream of. It involves failure. It involves failure every single day. So you've got to get out there and figure out what am I good at, what am I not good at, um, but be willing to take the risk. Absolutely. So true. So true. Okay. So public capital now. Um, so when you guys are looking at deals, so I know looking at multifamily, there's all types of, well, there are several different types of deals you can do depending on what your investors are looking for. So is there a certain type of deal that you guys like to focus on? at Hubbard Capital? Sure. What we mainly focus on, this is what we've, we've uh, it, was, it was a process to get here, let me say that. But what we're focusing on right now is usually B and C class multifamily with it, you know, at least 75 to 100 unit minimum uh, to start. And that's what we're looking for. Um, now, originally when I started in multifamily, I was uh, had a mentor that was uh, uh, in the multifamily business. But what I soon found out that uh, 20 units was about as big as anything he'd ever had. And I learned real quick, well, it's not really wasn't big enough to syndicate. And if I was going to do a 20 unit complex by myself, I didn't have the, the uh, net worth and everything to, you know, go in there 
and uh, get it done without, you know, using all the cash I had. So I said, to get bigger, we're going to have to learn about syndication. And I really hadn't looked at it that deep, but then I realized, okay, let's go look at syndication. And that's sort of how it ended up in the, in the type of multifamily we're in right now. Yeah, because if I understand correctly, you guys had eight units and you scaled to your next transaction of 116 units. Well, yep, that's pretty much it. The first one I bought was up in Chicago and uh, I was really not, uh, I was a, like a 30% partner on it and it was a, a seven or eight unit brownstone walk up is what it was. And it, uh, there's lots of issues there that went into it, but I'm not going to go into those. But from there, that's when I realized, okay, we're not going to be able to do it on this model. Let's go look at a bigger model. And that's when I started looking at the syndication process. And then the reasons why we only look, you know, of something over 75 units just from the economies of scale. And it takes just as many people to manage a 75 unit complex as it does say a hundred unit complex. The big difference mm -hmm. being is you have a lot more revenue on the hundred unit than you would say the 75. Yeah, and definitely. yes, our, our first deal was uh, actually, it's sort of a portfolio loan. It was 115 units. And then about a block and a half, two blocks away, there's another one that was 58 units. Now, I really wouldn't have looked at a 58 unit complex by itself, except that it's part of a portfolio. And because we have, you know, another property, you know, not even two blocks away, the synergies there as far as uh, having, you know, the management there uh, between the two of them is more like just owning 173 units uh, total because they're so very close to one another. Okay, so I'm thinking, so you guys have a seven or eight unit and then you're shifting to 116 and 58 units. Did that, did that take a huge adjustment and mindset just to say, okay, we're going to do this. I mean, how, how did that work for you guys? Well, I, you know, I wanted to do it, but I had to figure out how to do it. And it took me, it took me a few years to figure that part of it out as far as, you know, the syndicating and then trying to figure out okay, who really knows what they're doing in this, in this environment, because that's who I want to really partner with. And I had a mentor at first that did not work out for me at all. So, um, ended up with with a TMF with Mark Kenny and uh, that's really where that's really where the thing really came to came to fruition and everything started coming together was when that happened okay yeah I I'll add to that Donald because I you know I talked to a lot of people out there obviously we all network within the real estate community and there's a lot of people out there that want to do large multifamily deals um, they do a lot of talking about how much they want to do it networking and trying to find partners and in my opinion, I'm going to be very blunt. They're just wasting time because if you don't have a coach or a mentor or somebody that can guide you, um, there's so many things that can go wrong in a deal. And if you're dealing with just your own capital, that's fine. If you want to blow your own money, make a mistake, lose it all. But when you're dealing with investors money, that's something that, you know, my dad and I've had experience with just with him managing money in his hedge fund. Like we know it's, it's a whole nother ball game when you have investors money at stake. So you know, it, the belief system of how do you go from, you know, six units to 173, well, it's a heck of a lot easier when you've got some big muscle behind you that, you know, has got a 7,000 unit portfolio and has seen it all and done it all. You know, when you have a Mark Kinney behind your back, it's like, okay, well, let's take down 400 units, right? I mean, you're not afraid yeah. of those things after you've done the first one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, you definitely, when you're dealing with investors money, you just have to, it's a whole different set of responsibilities because it's, yeah, once you lose their money, they're not going to, they're not going to reinvest with you much more. I mean, it happens sometimes, but you only yeah. get one or two shots with your investors. No, you're done after that. I mean, one of the properties that we're looking at right now, unfortunately, we're 
probably picking up from an uneducated syndicator who got in over his head, bought too many properties, didn't know what he was doing. And he's just, I mean, he's just been driving him into the ground and it's, you know, it's a sad situation, but I think he's finally realizing he's going to have to tell all of his investors that, you know, he's got to sell off you know, these, these properties. And he could have avoided all that had he just gotten the right mentorship, you know, mm -hmm. that really knows what they're doing. It's kind of a, you got one shot and that's it. And he probably won't be back in the syndication world after this because it's just a small world. Everybody knows each other. All these investors are, are pretty educated on, you know, who the operators are and who knows what they're doing. So best to attach your name to somebody that's got a lot of credibility. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. All right, so I would I wanted to touch again on you guys. So I know both of your previous work you guys have done. I mean, I know Keely is a gifted communicator, Thank which you, you have to be <laughs> if you want success in sales. And I know Tracy, you have an incredible skill for being able to take a macro and micro look at the numbers of a potential deal and have a good idea if it works or doesn't. So tell me about how your previous work has helped you both excel in these areas. Well, I'll uh, probably start off with, uh, I'm sort of a, a left brain guy anyway, so I like numbers and that kind of stuff. So that, that is every business I've ever bought, um, took a lot of analysis on it before I would even go out there and put, put the deal together to buy the company. And then running the companies, uh, you know, I had a lot of experience in dealing with employees, government agencies, on and on and on. So, you know, on down the road. But I would say that the buying the businesses is really, you know, when you're buying something of value, uh, you have to underwrite everything. So I learned, you know, before I even really knew what it was called, you know, doing the analysis on a business, whether or not it's something I want to buy or not. I started learning pretty early in my entrepreneurial stage back in the 80s. And then um, going through the difficult, uh, even though it was very painful, the, the bankruptcy, uh, that even, you know, taught me a lot uh, before I went into the trading world. It's sort of weird. The way I look at life, I think everything, you know, that you've done in the past should be leading up to the point of where you are right now and taking all those lessons you've learned and putting that skill set on whatever the deal you're getting ready to do. Now, it is important, though, that you try to stay in an area like I said, where your, your gifting is. And that's something, you know, that I really hadn't put that part of the puzzle together until uh, we worked together as a family. Cause up to that point, I was, you know, pretty much the one man show of the companies that I own. Uh, you know, I was the salesman, I was the accountant, the legal guy, pretty much all of it. Uh, but then when I had uh, put the other companies, uh, we bought another company and we got the whole family in there working together. Then I started seeing the giftings of my children, you know, and it's sort of, you know, it's pretty uh, eye-opening sometimes because they'll tell you things that an employee wouldn't. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> yeah. I remember, I, you know, I would say something like this, like, I think you're forgetting who's the boss. And, but, you know, they, they would go ahead and tell me, you know, but, Dad, you're wrong. Now, most employees will not, will not tell their boss that. So it was a, it was a good experience for me. And, uh, but you've got to swallow your pride and realize, you know, you raise these kids, so they're not dumb. So you ought to listen to what they have to say. And that doesn't mean I don't have some wisdom of my own to impart upon them, but it did make a big difference. So I guess one thing I would say is everything I've done was preparing me to be a multifamily syndicator. Everything I'd put all the way up through the bankruptcy and everything, all the pain. Uh, I think it, it helped me out even, and I'm a former Marine. So everything I learned uh, in the Marine Corps helped me uh, where I'm at today. Now it didn't make me a great, you know, um, uh, 
<laughs> it's well, my wife said it once she goes, cause we got, I got married right out of boot camp, And, um, after we married a couple of years, we were talking about going back out to San Diego where uh, the boot camp was. And she goes, I want to go out there and visit that base. Cause I want to go in there and see where they took your compassion and put it in a box. Cause you're a pretty hard nosed guy. <laughs> I said, well, I can tell you it's not in there in a box anywhere, but that was something, you know, that I had to uh, learn. It's like he said, it's not what you're saying. It's how you say it. So that makes a lot of big difference. Uh, you know, on how you communicate with things. So I, I do understand my weaknesses and uh, strengths and weaknesses and, you know, try to stay in my lane, I guess is what I would say. And Tracy, another thing I wanted to get your take on. So you spoke, spoke about buying businesses as well. So when you're, we do that as well at, at G1C group, but one thing I noticed when you're evaluating companies, a lot of times the sellers, especially if they're original founders, they have a lot different, take on what the valuation of that deal is than what you do. <laughs> that is so true. So I've how never... do you, yeah, how do you bring a seller down off of that perch to get them to realize, you know, what the true value should be as far as, you know, multiples of EBITDA or how do, how do you, how do you handle that part of it? Well, you usually take, and that is true. Most of the time companies, uh, you know, it's, it's like anything you have. You take a, uh, take a nice car for instance or a diamond ring or whatever you think and you say, okay, this is worth X dollars. Well, if you really want to know what something's worth, try to sell it. Cause you know, in, in times in the past when I've been under financial stress and I may have to sell some things, you know, when I went, when I went bankrupt, we, we liquidated just about everything we had. And you think something's worth something until you put it out there on the market and realize oh, it's really not worth that much. So I try to, do, I try to do it where I get the owner of the business to come to the conclusion on his own, by just presenting the facts to him. And, you know, sometimes it may be, uh, you know, unrealistic multiples of earnings, you know, they want for the money or they want to be able to keep living the lifestyle they were uh, <laughs> in the company, but yet not, you know, not give in anything. So, and that has a lot to do with where that really happens is when you're talking about small businesses When the company's not that big, that's usually where you're going to find uh, the overvaluation a whole lot, but it's, yeah. it's sort of like, you just got to show them, say, here's, here's what this is the market for. You know, and if they can't ever get to that point, then you got to walk away from it. It's no different than a real estate deal from that perspective. Right. I'm working on one right now that I've been chasing for six months, actually longer than that. And I say chasing is because I was talking to the seller about it. Uh, I actually had a broker approach them because it really not one on the market still isn't. And I wanted to buy it, but he, he had some numbers that were just not, wouldn't, wasn't going to work. And I said, well, we'll just wait around and, you know, see how, how long he can last and hang on to this thing. Cause I knew right then it was not a distress, distress property, but he, he wasn't doing well. I said, he's going to run out of cash and he's going to be desperate. And, uh, you know, he finally came back and said, okay, we'll look at it. And we had some more negotiations and we finally got down to the bottom line and you know, it's, uh, we're pretty much almost there. I'll know this week, but I think it's going to be there. Okay, and I think probably in those situations, it's a lot kind of like what you just said as well. It's not what you say, but how you say it when you're trying to get them to be more realistic about their what they're asking for for the for the business or property. Yeah, you can't say you're crazy. You're not going to get that. You're not. You know, you yeah. can't say that. You, know? <laughs> you just have to give them facts. And you got to also understand this is something Keely will touch on that she does. You got to know who you're talking to and what their personality traits are on how, how you're going to approach something because you can say things to some personality types that you can't say to another, but if he's a facts and figures guy, then you just lay out the facts and say, Hey, 
I know what you think this is worth, but this is what it's sell for, but this is what's selling for around you. And these things that are selling around you, they've got occupancies in the nineties, you know, and, and this and this, you just lay it all out. And because of that, you know, you just got to educate them and they probably know it in their heart. They just don't want to admit it. So they've got to come to terms, comes to grip with it themselves too. Um, I try to do that real quick. Uh, once, once I see something that's not going to work, I don't waste a lot of time, you know, trying to hammer somebody in to get the deal done. Either it's going to work or not. And you just got to be able to walk away from it if they can't ever get there. Okay. Very good. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, Keely and Miss Miss Sales, how do you think um, how do you think your sales your sales experience ties into your as far as reaching out to investors, communicating with them? How does that help you excel? Yeah, I would say it's um, it's just as much about talking to investors as it is with building your general partnership team, because you know. It's going to take time for us to build up a big enough database to be able to fund, you know, all of our capital raises ourselves. So in the meantime, you know, we're going to have to bring on other people in our group to help us out with, you know, raising capital and some of the other, you know, tasks that are involved in a project. And, you know, when I was in corporate America, I had, you know, 12 directors spread out. I mean, internationally, a lot of them were in the U.S., but some of them were international, 120 people on my sales teams. And so I love, I've got the team experience. You know, I, I love sales teams and I understand what it takes to, you know, to stay motivated, to drive revenue. You know, the big thing is when you're managing a capital raise, you've got to take everything that you can off of your general partnership team's plate that's focused on raising capital that has nothing to do with raising capital. Meaning if I want them out there talking to their investors and they're getting hung up on, you know, the, their investors having a challenge with the paperwork, hand them off, let me help them. I'll give them a phone call. You know, you keep calling and working with investors uh, would be one example. Or, you know, we've had some people on our general partnership team before that say, hey, can I, you know, I'd love to have a two page, you know, tear sheet or PDF about the property in addition to the investor deck. It's like, sure, I'll knock it out in a couple hours and send it over to you. So what can you do to take all the administrative stuff and those tasks off of your team's plate so they can go out there and drive revenue, which is, you know, bringing in the capital for the deal to make sure that it, you know, it, it gets across the finish line when it's time to close. So just as much um, as having the skill set of working with investors and really understanding what their needs are, it's also the same thing when, you, when you're working in a team and building a team during a capital raise specifically. Okay, and, and so Keely, I know you became um, a vice president of sales at your corporation at a pretty young age. I mean, you're young now, so at a very young age. Thank so you. what kind of, um, I would say, what kind of focus or determination did it have to, did you have to have to get to that point? Because I know when I was in corporate America, young, I mean, I didn't get anywhere near a vice presidency because I just was distracted by everything that was going on. So I, 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 how did you make that happen? Yeah, I just, um, you know, well, I started out in sales, like directly, me selling directly and had great success, you know, with, I was in the smallest market in the network and had the least amount of prospects coming through the door, but I had some of the highest sales numbers in the company. And so I was really able to refine my craft. And it was also just selling from a place of integrity and my values. And the company, when I, you know, when I started out working for them, it, it was a, you know, family franchise when we started out with them. And so I really developed my skill set there, but they didn't have sales training. 
well, I should replace that. They had sales training, but it was the typical like used car salesman, manipulative, just gross. And I didn't like it. I was like, I'm not selling like that. I don't believe in that. So I, I had to create my own process and my own system. And I had incredible success with that. So, you know, eventually we ended up selling the franchise and, you know, they said, Hey, can you come on board with corporate and can you implement your sales system? And at that time, the company was about probably 40 million a year in revenue. And if I'm being transparent, it, it scared the crap out of me, you know, <laughs> of course I wanted to do it, but I'm literally, I was probably at the time 26, 27 years old and I knew it worked for me, but I'd never taught it to anybody. But my, my advice, and I think what made me successful is I said yes, and then I knew I could figure it out. It's always say yes, and then figure it out later. Whatever opportunity that arises, say yes, take it on, do it, and you'll figure it out later. And you know, over a period of a little bit less than four years, I was able to help grow the company from 40 million to about 215 million, 219 million um, awesome. a year of revenue. And you know, with a sales process and a system that you can be proud of, right? And how you're treating your clients and your, your customers because you're selling with integrity. And it's all those little moments of stepping out that builds your confidence. All those little things that, I remember the first presentation that I had to give, I was literally presenting probably in front of five people. It wasn't a big, it was like five people in the room, right? But I was scared to death and I remember thinking, just do it, right? Because eventually five people turned into 600 and 600 wasn't as scary because I had done all the little things along the way. I'd said yes. And I did things that scared me. I did things that made me uncomfortable, but you grow. The more moments that you have like that, you figure out what you're capable of. And, you know, all of a sudden me setting my sights on vice president before I'm 30 wasn't, you know, too far away. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right, guys. So here we are now. We're approaching October 2020. So um, do either of you see opportunity to offer your investors increased returns in the current environment? Well, when you say increased returns, um, we're still able to find some deals that give us the kind of returns we've been looking for, but it's getting harder, but uh, there's a lot more deals out there now than there was even a month ago. So I'm still, I'm, I'm encouraged about what I'm seeing. I still think we're going to have interest rates are going to, I think they're going to stay low for at least a couple of years. And uh, that's, that's lots of opportunity for cheap money that will make a lot of these deals work that may not have worked even a year or two ago. All right. And when you say um, it's getting harder, is that because of increased opportunity or just the, um, what's making it more difficult? Um, well, I don't want to put it out there. It's mainly as buyers coming in and paying too much for stuff. It's <laughs> so. syndicators overpaying for properties, yep. you know, like we, and you're probably experiencing this too, Donald, but we'll see properties that, you know, people are posting about, oh, we're under contract. And it's like, we looked at that property two months ago and we couldn't make the numbers work but they're overpaying for it. And the challenge for their investors is that their investors are really gonna feel that pain in a few years. If they, because they don't have contingencies in place. I mean, they're underwriting, they say it's conservative, but it's really not because there's no way that we could make the numbers work. So that's why we're really focused on, you know, markets where we know that we can make an impact. Um, we don't have a lot of those, um, those syndicators out there that are too aggressive in their underwriting that are bidding properties up. But most investors, there's, there's a lot of money that's anxious to get put to work. You know, there's a lot of investors that are ready to put their money to work, a lot that want to get, you know, something done before the end of 2020. So there's a ton of investor money out there and we're still finding really great deals. You know, most of our investors are wanting to double their money in five or six years. And we're still finding really great deals that, that fit those returns that have great cash on cash um, and are just, you know, solid value add 
uh, cash flowing deals. Yeah, I definitely do. I think that it's definitely the energies out there. A lot of people want the opportunity to put their money to work. So yeah, I definitely agree with you there, Keely. So guys, when you're approaching a multifamily property, what are the what are the main attributes that you look for in an acceptable investment that are get, that are going to get you the returns that you want for your investors? Well, like you say, you got to start first off with what type, what is, what are your goals and what are your investors' goals to see if they're actually even doable. Because, um, like Keto was just saying, some of these returns, you know, being able to uh, get your 100% return in five or six years, those deals are not as fluid as they used to be, but you can still find some. So you're looking for that, but you're looking for uh, properties in the right area, just pretty much the same thing you would do, uh, you know, going back to, uh, you know, several years. I mean, that hasn't changed. Uh, I think right now, what you have to be careful of is, is people, some of, a lot of these people locked in some rates a couple of years ago. And at a couple of years ago, the rates sounded pretty good, like, you know, 5%. And then the market started coming down, down, down. Well, now, the rates are, you know, down to the threes, and sometimes you can get it in high twos. Well, that makes the deal work, except if you're trying to buy, they have either prepayment penalties in there they're stuck with that they can't get out of. And so it's almost like you got to assume that loan. Well, who's going to assume a five and a half or 6% loan? Nobody wants to do that. And you usually won't make the numbers work quite as, quite as well. So you just got to look at the thing and uh, do some real quick analysis on them, see if it's even close. Uh, I look for the unit mix, you know, to be not too heavily uh, one side or the other as far as, you know, studio and one bedrooms versus two bedrooms and three bedrooms. You need a good mix there uh, to be able to get your property right. And, you know, you've got to know your market. Uh, a lot of people just, you know, start shotgunning stuff out there in all these different markets, but it's hard to be an expert on the, all these markets. So what you usually do is probably pick an area that you, that you are in or going to want to be in and spend a lot of time there. And get to know brokers and all that kind of stuff. And that's sort of how we ended up with our properties right now that we have. And it's in Lubbock. Uh, and so I've learned the Lubbock market really, really good. And I've got great contacts up there. And uh, if something's going to be on the market, I'm going to hear about it pretty quick. So that's, that's what you've got to do. That's, you know, it's, and it's, it can be a little tough. You have to do some, you know, travel every now and then and learn that market. But in the long run, uh, it'll pay off. Okay. And, um, and both of you have touched on this earlier. When you're, um, when you're talking about the general partnership, um, what attributes do you look for in the team builders when you're looking to build out your general partnership? I think it depends on, you know, the deal. In our first portfolio that we did, you know, we put up our own earnest money. So really the, the help that we needed was raising capital. So that's really what we were looking for in future deals. You know, we may bring somebody else on to help raising capital to help with raising capital. You know, Mark Kenny was our KP on our first deal. Um, we'll probably have somebody KP our next deal as well. But as far as attributes go, you know, if somebody's raising capital, you're looking for the go getters. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a guy in our group and you probably know who he is. I mean, he, he is the go-to for raising capital because his investors are primed. They're ready to go. Um, he communicates with them extremely well. He is just constantly on the phone um, and truly cares about their success. So you know that if he says that you can count on him for, you know, $1 million in, in the capital raise, you can count on him. Um, he's going to deliver what he says he's going to deliver. So you want some experience as well. You know, you need people that are experienced raising capital. But at the same time, we, 
you know, we love to bring people into a general partnership team that are even brand new. You know, let's see what they're capable of because so they got to take a shot somewhere, right, to start building their track record. So if we can bring somebody on board that's brand new and help them build a track record and they still bring value to the deal, then, um, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. Okay, excellent. All right, uh, one more question before we start a lightning round. So if I'm a passive investor, what kind of questions should I be asking the general partnership before I invest with them? That's a great question. Um, you know, obviously track record, right? So you want to make sure that if you're dealing with a lead sponsor who is, you know, under a couple of thousand units of experience, who else is on the team that has the experience? That's one of the reasons that, one of the big reasons that we joined family and partnered with Mark Kenny on our deal because, you know, he's got a ton of credibility and it gives us um, a lot of clout with our investors. You know, they understand, okay, wow, there's somebody on the team that really knows what they're doing. So that's a big one. But I think there's smaller questions that a lot of um, investors may not know to ask. I had this conversation with a potential investor a couple of days ago, and I was explaining to him that, you know, there's a certain level of underwriting that you need to understand so you know the right questions to ask. And it's really the tricks that syndicators play, you know, with the numbers to make a deal look good. And unfortunately, some investors don't know to ask those questions. And we're proud of our underwriting because we truly are conservative. We've got so many contingencies in place. Our returns always come in lower than what the, you know, the property management company is projecting. And one thing that I, I gave him a tip on to ask any lead sponsor that he's looking at on a deal is, you know, are they raising for the first distribution? This is just one example of, you know, how sometimes the numbers can, uh, can it look better than what they really are? So if a syndicator is raising for the first distribution, they're basically over raising for the deal. So then they can say that they did the first distribution, you know, within three months, for example, of the property closing. Well, you're basically taking your investors money and then just giving it back to them. And the biggest mm -hmm. problem is it dilutes everybody's equity and it doesn't give you a, a great idea or a, a real uh, perspective of how the property is actually doing. And is it really performing? So that's, you know, just one example of a question that um, people should be asking and, you know, how they evaluate the exit cap rate is a big one that my dad and I have talked about quite a bit. You know, we're super conservative on that as well. So there's some of those kind of more detailed questions that they may not be aware of that we try to educate them going into it. That way we know they're looking at other deals as well, um, that they can make the best educated decisions for themselves, even with other investments and other multifamily deals that aren't ours specifically. Okay, very good stuff. Yeah, I would sort of add something on that. You've got to, um, you know, no one plans to sit down and make a plan and say, okay, I'm going to start this business, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go bankrupt. Well, nobody makes that kind of plan. <laughs> everybody, but everybody puts in those numbers that are sometimes not so realistic, though. So you've got to, uh, you've got to stress test it and just do all types of things to make sure that you're not uh, over-calculating, uh, you know, the returns. I mean, now it doesn't mean it couldn't be a lot better. It could be a lot better, but if you stress test it at first, it's a lot, it's a lot, goes a lot smoother. I sort of put it in correlation of what the being in the Marine Corps, you know, you have a battle plan and battle plans are laid out by these generals and everything, you know, this happens, this happens, this is how we're going to do it. And then someone fires the first shot. <laughs> well, once you've been shot at all that plan goes out the window and you start trying to maneuver. So you're in panic mode. So you better have, a really good um, 
stress test plan that not just yourself is looking at and that someone else is looking at it because we have a tendency to sort of, you know, shade to the, the better side of what we would like for it to be. So you need someone who doesn't, doesn't mind hurting your feelings to say, okay, I looked at this and this is what you need to consider because you may not have considered that. So I think that's important, uh, sort of like an accountability, uh, someone to hold you accountable on what you're doing and why you did it. Definitely, definitely. I've, I've actually had that experience myself where I said, you really want to push a deal through, so you might not even be cognizant of it, but you're ignoring very crucial information that could make the deal go sideways a month or even three or four months out. So yeah, you definitely need that accountability partner. I definitely agree. Right. It's a game of patience. I get that question a lot from you know brand new uh, multifamily syndicators, if you could give yourself advice when you first started, what would it be? And, and I think it's just reminding everybody that you've got to be patient and never, ever, ever, ever compromise your underwriting. You know, would we have loved to have another project done since our last one and that closed in November? Yeah, <laughs> we would have loved to have finished another, another project, but COVID happened, you know, and then everything kind of slowed down from there. And since then we've been submitting a lot of LOIs and we haven't had anything accepted yet. So when something when we don't win a property, we don't, we're not disappointed. We're like, well, that's not our property. And you know, the first portfolio that we did, we put an offer in on it and we didn't get it, but you know what? It fell out of contract 60 days later and came back around. So it's just that mindset of, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to find the right deals. The right deals are going to come to me and they're going to perform long-term regardless of, you know, the market conditions, any crisis that might pop up because I know I did the underwriting correctly from the beginning. And that's really how you build a solid business and a brand and a reputation long-term with your investors. Yeah, definitely. No deal is better than a bad deal, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Excellent. So, okay. Lightning round now. So I'm going to give each of you a question and I'm going to give, um, all right, so this first one is for you. Um, what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Ah, that's a great question. Um, one that I'm reading right now, it's called The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. And, you know, people, when you think about books, people always tend to go to Think and Grow Rich and kind of the, the classics that everybody mentions. But I love this book because it, it talks about, it addresses your belief system about money. Oftentimes, like with the Think and Grow Rich book, we're always focused on more, 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 and how do we achieve the life we want? All those things are important. But this book on the soul of money really talks about um, how we, what our relationship is with money and shifts us from waking up every day to thinking, you know, more and more and more to there's enough to go around for everybody and I'm a vessel for good and money's going to flow through me regardless. And it, it shifts that scarcity mindset that we've, you know, the culture puts us into naturally. Um, and, and it just, it, it's brought a lot of peace of mind and just a perspective on um, how I look at money and my relationship with money. Okay. Yeah, and that's actually the second or third time I've heard that book. So I'm going to have to put that one on my reading list. So definitely. Okay. And Tracy, this one is for you. Um, how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Uh, I would say that the thing I, I point back to the, uh, and I've had other failures in my life. It's not as probably as big as the uh, bankruptcy one was. And I guess what I learned from that is it was more of a prideful thing. I mean, I did what I could to try to save it. And it just didn't work out. But, but I guess what, you know, and I guess what I didn't want to be is, a uh, I didn't want to be a failure in my kids or my wife's eyes. That's really, to be honest with you, that's what I really, you know, 
had the biggest problem with. And it turned out real quick, the kids didn't care one way or the other. They just want to make sure that, uh, hey, we're just, we're, we're a family still. We stay together as a family. And the reason I even bring that up is because back then I had, you know, all the bells and whistles of everything a guy could have. We had the big house on the golf course. I had a yacht, you know, nice cars, all that kind of stuff. Well, that all went away you know, pretty quick. And we moved out of that into a, you know, a little bitty townhouse and a three bedroom. I got four kids and a dog. So we were, you know, we were pretty crowded. Uh, and the kids didn't care where they lived or what it was, as long as we're together as a family. So you just got to keep your priorities straight and just realize that, uh, hey, this is just, uh, it's just another thing in the road and you can get through it. And I have a thing, you know, I'd say to people now, if they, if they are in trouble and they're having issues, you know, and this way I look at life also when something, the wheels come off something, I look at it and go, you know what? Nobody's bleeding. Nobody died. It's all good. So that's how I look at life. And I just take it one step at a time. Yeah. Very good perspective. Okay. And so Keely, if you can have an, if you can have an advertisement on a billboard, on, I won't even say advertisement. If you can have a message, if you can have a message on a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Mm -hmm. I would say you're, you are capable. Like, I think we don't do in life what we can, we do what we believe we are. And everything always comes back to who do you believe you are as a person? Do you believe that you're capable of amazing things, starting a business, whatever it is that your, your dream life is, um, it's you are capable. You are capable. And I would add to that, that this life is not a dress rehearsal. You know, we, I, I think about, you know, my grandpa, my dad's dad is 98 years old and, you know, still in great health, but he's got some regrets. And he started talking about that recently of just things that he regrets in his life. And I, you know, I've, I've heard this quote before that, um, you know, regret weighs tons. It, it just burdens you. And there's a lot of t things that we probably think, oh my gosh, I would love to try that. I would love to step out, but we don't do it because we're afraid of what other people think, or we're afraid of what if it's a failure and just constantly reminding people that this life is not a, a dress rehearsal. We have one life. That's it. One life to make an impact, one life to, um, you know, to really leave something behind and leave some sort of a legacy. So I know you only asked for one, but I'm going to give you two. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Thanks. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay, and Tracy, what are some bad recommend, recommendations that you hear in your day-to-day -day for people new, new to multifamily investing? Well, the multifamily, um, I would say, part, you know, here it is, partnering with people they don't know, you know, or, and that could be a general partnership or a limited partner. You really, got, you really need to know the person. I mean, we don't want to do business with people we really don't know because number one, you have to have a relationship there anyway, just some <clears throat> part of it. But at the same time, it, you know, I don't care how much money someone brings to the table. If I don't like being around them, I'm not going to do it. So be careful on who you partner with, I guess is what I would say. Make sure you, you uh, do your due diligence on everything and uh, to make sure it's, they're a pleasant person to be around. That's what I said to my son once who was, going to school um, to be an attorney. And he already had a, uh, a degree in economics, but he went to law school and did, you know, he got a scholarship for it. But uh, we were having lunch one summer and we were talking about that. He goes, you know, dad, you know, 
because I was talking about what my passion was for real estate and stuff like that. And he, I said, I'm glad you found your passion. He goes, dead law is not my passion. I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, you make good money. I'm going, you know, I can tell you right now from experience, the money will get old. It will not mean anything uh, when you start dreading uh, that drive to work because you hate your job. And so I would find your passion and do it. Just find out what your passion is because there's lots of ways to make money and you can still follow whatever your passion is uh, because you may have the financial freedom to be able to do that. And it's the same thing with people, what you're saying about it's, you know, the money's not worth it if you don't like who you're in business with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. That's very sound advice. All right. So one more for each of you. So Kitty, I know the more success you have, the more opportunities and invitations you get from people to do different things, right? So mm -hmm. in, the, in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um, I think it's, it comes back to like learning to say no, maybe not specifically to certain things, but not feeling bad about it. Yeah. You know, because a lot of times people say yes to everything, they don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Um, no to things that are, well, here's a good one. No to things that are not aligned with my values. I don't care what the financial opportunity is. I've turned down you know, opportunities before that were not aligned with who I am as a person and what I believe to be true and right. And, you know, people would think, oh, that's crazy. Look at, look at how much money that you could make. And it's like, that, to me, that's not worth it. Um, so it's, you know, re-evaluating re your life and redesigning your values. And if it doesn't fit in that value system, then it's a no for me. No matter how shiny it is or how sparkly it is or how much money is attached to it. Okay, terrific. Absolutely. All right, and Tracy, last one's for you. When you, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? Uh, go for a walk <laughs> is what I do. <laughs> And just try it because you know I'll tell you something. Um, I get some of the best ideas, creative ideas, whether I'm when I'm on a long drive or going for a walk, because it just sort of changes the environment and you get out of it, and you, that way you can sort of focus more on that. Uh, a lot of people don't like driving, you know, on long trips. I like driving, and because that's when I get my most productive, because my mind just starts to work on stuff, and I've come up with some of the, my best ideas is you know on long cross country drives or whatever it is. Now. <laughs> you're gonna if you gotta work and come back to the office, don't take off for another state. So you know to get an idea. But that's that's just how I, I operate or try to do something to break the focus on what I've been doing. Maybe it's to go in there on the exercise gym and do some you know some quick workouts or something like that. Just something to break that that block of where you're at. That's sort of what I try to do. Okay, excellent, good stuff, guys. All right, so guys, if, um, if people want to learn more about what you're doing at Hubbard Capital, um, how, how do they get in touch with you guys? Uh, you know, just go to HubbardCapitalGroup.com, and my phone number is actually right on the website. So I've had several people that just call me because they see that there, or, um, you know, there's a forum on there that you can reach out to, to stay in touch with us. Okay, excellent, excellent. So guys, this was some very valuable content you gave our listeners today, so I really appreciate you guys coming on. Thanks so much. Absolutely, Donald. You Thanks. you have really great questions, you know. I haven't heard these before. I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right, guys. So you guys have a great week, and I'll be talking to you guys soon, I'm sure. Perfect. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. There you have it, guys. 
another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves. <laughs>